for approval of the minutes from October 17th. So moved. Second. Thank you. Any comments or additions? <laughs> Seeing none, all those in favor say aye. 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 Opposed? Passes. Public comment. Do we have anyone registered for public comment? Mm -hmm. No, no public comment. Um, disclosures and recusals. Because I could recuse myself. I don't see any of those. <laughs> okay. And then on to number five. How quickly we are proceeding. Review and adoption of language to allow for public discourse during certain items on the agenda. And this is suggested language from the city attorney. As you all recall, at the last meeting, we wanted to find some ideas about how to allow more robust, less little three-minute at the front end kind of input that we would like to have. Um, so I met with um, City Attorney May, and we kind of hashed out some language to use on um, specific agenda item numbers. Um, I was thinking that would mainly... Uh, be used when presentations are being held um, to allow for public uh, participation. Um, so that was the idea behind this suggested language. And so I guess I'm looking for a motion to adopt or comments. Move to adopt. So we can discuss it. Then moved and seconded. Any comments about the language? Seeing none. Oh. I'm trying to get my head around it. Um, so is my question to Attorney May? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Attorney May. So when it says here to have the public participate in subcommittee discussions and provide testimony, that sounds like it's more than the presentation. It doesn't, I mean, I, what I heard Lisa say is that it's really not a presentation, so this, it doesn't specify that. So it would be anything That's right. Yeah, no, the point was to make it as broad as possible. At least that was my understanding of what the committee wanted, that at certain times you may essentially want to just sort of have a roundtable with the, the members of the committee and perhaps public members and perhaps someone may, would make a presentation or whatever. And so this was to suspend the rules to allow that sort of uh, more freewheeling sort of discussion. And then, um, and then it goes on to say the chair shall maintain order and decorum. Any motions, you know, within Robert's rules. So would it also be recommended that 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 something be stated when you? I mean, do you go into that? You know what I mean? Do you, like you go into committee of the whole or something? I mean, do you go into open discussion with the public and then come out of it? When you do that, is there language that says during this time there will be discussion with, you know, with whoever is sitting at the table and um, or I don't know what the language would be, decorum will be maintained. I mean, if what... What's the procedure? The procedure would be that on any time you'd have an item on your agenda where you wanted to use this more informal process, you would repeat this language on the agenda 
and somebody would then actually make a motion to suspend the rules pursuant to the language, you know, read it out loud. A second, that motion is approved, and then you've suspended the rules for that item. And then when that's done, you're back in the regular Roberts Rules of Order. So that that's the intention. If that's very helpful. So if we wanted to um, have a whole meeting on one agenda, on one topic, say, but we wanted this committee just to convene a discussion that might not just be around a table like this, but multiple tables, facilitated small group discussions and like a complete meeting that's of that nature, but it is done by our committee. Would we just have one agenda item, suspend the rules at the beginning of the evening, and then, I mean, would that be okay? Or would it be better to have, have an event and say a quorum of us might be there? If it was something like that, just like organize an event and say a quorum of this subcommittee might be there or... Would it be better to convene formally as the subcommittee, suspend the rules, and then do the event, and then I, go back? I think I would, I would say that if this subcommittee was organizing the event, like a neighborhood meeting or mm -hmm. public meeting or whatever, then I think you would probably want to notice it up as if it were, you know, a meeting of this committee. Um, if it was organized by a third party and you wanted to be there and you might have a quorum there, that's when you'd use the notice of quorum and you wouldn't actually suspend the rules and, and follow that procedure. But if it was our event, we could do it as free form as we wanted as long as we did, the, uh, did this yes. disclaimer. Okay. The exact form that it takes is up to you folks at that point once you've suspended the rules to say we're in, we're in free form or whatever. Okay. <laughs> I have a question. Would it be appropriate to have on the top of every agenda that this committee may decide to kind of language so that we always have the language before us, even, you know, maybe this meeting we wouldn't use it, but so you don't have to dig through your notes or, you know, or does it only show up when we have a specific item? I would prefer that you identify the items ahead of time where you're going to do this. Um, Putting it on there that you might do this on any item on the agenda doesn't really tell people what may or may not happen. It's sort of like putting at the top of the agenda, we may go into closed session on any of these things. And I think it's better for the public if on the agenda you can identify the items that may be in more free form and those where you're going to be operating as a city committee. So then when we put out the agenda, that's the, the timing. That, that makes sense. Thank you. But then you would have the language right under, like if it was agenda item number three, whatever it is, and then you can say the committee may suspend, blah, 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 all of this. Just like BOE, when mm -hmm. like closed session. Right, BOE closed session or suspension of the rules on certain items mm -hmm. at council meetings. Any other questions? Are you ready to adopt? All those in favor, say aye. 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 Opposed? Passes. Thank you. Um, item number six is a presentation and discussion, which is by the City Attorney May, Michael May and Assistant City Attorney Marcy Paulson. Welcome to both of you. And it's going to be about the division of legal authority between the police chief, the mayor, and the council and the operation of the police department. And in our packet, for those of you watching on TV and Legistar land, you can find um, some series of memos, but we'll walk through those. 
So okay. Thank you. Um, yeah, there are a series of uh, memos attached uh, to your uh, agenda. At uh, various times, our office has issued opinions on various questions about the legal authority between the mayor, uh, the police chief, and the common council. I actually had not planned to walk through them. I, I am happy to answer questions on them if you wish. What I thought I would do instead is sort of try and give you a summary or an overview of what I interpret the law to be based on the various times we've researched it, try to give you a little bit of guidance, and then open it up for questions or discussion. And if you have specific questions about any of the memos, I'd be happy to, to talk about them. Um, I'd start out by saying that you know, this is an area of the law, one of those areas that has a lot of gray lines. It's not, it's not a lot of clarity here. There are different statutes that are in some ways conflicting and overlapping, and there are not a lot of cases out there that help you interpret what those statutes mean. And so it puts you in a situation where you can sort of give some guidance in a specific set of facts, um, but you can't be absolutely certain. And if, it, if you're somewhere in the middle, in the gray land, you can be pretty certain that if push came to shove and you got into litigation, that there would be good arguments on both sides, that both sides could claim, no, this is my area of jurisdiction. The other would claim, this is my area of jurisdiction. So it's, it's relatively, uh, it's difficult enough to give clear answers, even with specific facts. And when you're talking in the abstract, which is sort of what we're talking about tonight, it's almost impossible to tell you, here's the line, there's the line. So that's just sort of a, a background or overview. There are, there are four key statutes that come into play here, and you'll find them repeated at various points in these memoranda, and I'm going to just talk about them in order. The first one is uh, 62.09 sub 8, which says essentially that the mayor is the head of the police and fire departments. Um, and that's an interesting thing that they put in the statutes. They don't say that about any other city departments. Um, Yet it's pretty clear from the other from cases and other things, the mayor is the chief executive. It's the mayor's job to see that the laws are faithfully executed, all of those things. The other um, heads of departments would report to the mayor. I think it's in there to make him sort of the titular head because there are these counterbalancing statutes which seem to say the police chief is totally independent. And so they wanted to say that about the mayor, that in fact the chief can't just be out there on his own, has to report to the mayor, and the mayor is at least in some way uh, the head of the police department. So I think, um, and, the, and the fire department, both, both departments. Um, so I think that's an important um, fact to keep in mind. The legislature thought it was important enough to say that specifically about the police and fire department, about the mayor, and that the mayor is technically the head of both of those departments, and, and that's why the chiefs would report to the mayor. Um, what exactly that means in a given set of circumstances, you'd have to look at the facts and figure out where it went. Um, then there, there's and also in 6209, there's sub-13, which says... The police chief is to run the police force. So it's the chief who's given the obligation to tell the police where they're supposed to be, to protect the public, and uh, to essentially run the police department. So even though the mayor is the head of the department, he isn't, he isn't supposed to run the department. Um, and this, you can see immediately where we're getting into these statutes that have been around for a long time but without a lot of cases, and it's hard to tell uh, in the abstract uh, what it is. Um, this section also states explicitly that the chief is to obey what the statutes call, quote, all lawful orders, close quote, of the mayor or of the common council. And, 
course, the lawyer would ask, I wonder why they say lawful orders. Obviously, it's not all orders because then they wouldn't have the word lawful in there. And so their must, lawful must mean something in terms of not uh, either being beyond your jurisdiction or not adopted incorrectly. Um, and you've got this funny situation where, and I think I, in a couple emails to people, we talked about some hypotheticals. And well, what happens if the council issues a resolution giving this kind of order to the police chief, and then the mayor issues a completely different order to the police chief? Which one's a lawful order? Which one isn't? How do you decide that? Luckily, those are all hypotheticals. But it's clear that this is saying that despite the fact that the chief is to run the police department, that the mayor and the, and the common council have some ability to direct the chief in the operation of the department. They can issue a lawful order. Now, the council would do that by adopting a resolution. The mayor could just do it probably by sending an email or something like that. Um, I... I I take lawful to mean something more than just that uh, the council or the mayor acted procedurally properly when they issued the order, because then that, that applies to anything they do. If they, did, if they made a mistake procedurally, it isn't, it isn't a lawful order. So I take it to mean that, that there, there must be some line there where they're setting a substantive line. Some of your orders can go up to here, and they're lawful, and if you get over here, you're into the chief's area, and now it's not a lawful order. Where's that line? We don't know yet, and we will continue to look at it. The third key statute is 6211 sub 5. This is probably the most important statute that um, cities have, which is what we call the statutory home rule amendment. It gives the common council the power over the city property, the city uh, health and welfare, the city finances, and it says the, essentially that the, uh, the um, city council has all the power that the legislature could possibly give it unless the legislature has taken it away, which is why we constantly are dealing with these laws where the legislature comes in and takes it away, because if they don't, then you can do it. So that's, that's why they do this. And in, in, in this area, I think the key thing here is um, the control of the city finances, because I think the power of the purse is one area where the council's authority is stronger than other areas. You could, when you set the budget, chief can't, is not to exceed that budget. Or if you set the budget and you say you cannot buy X, Y, and Z, then the chief is not to buy X, Y, and Z. He doesn't have the budgetary authority to do it. So there is, to some extent, an ability to set some policy in your budget about what you're going to, what, uh, what is going to happen in the police department. In the long memo, the, uh, if you only have time to read one of these, read the one about the tasers, uh, the long memo. And that was one where I thought it was a very close call, but concluded it was probably an area the council could have authority, if only by putting in the budget that no funds will be expended to, to purchase tasers. And then they, they couldn't have them. That didn't happen. Um, and uh, just as an aside, it's sort of interesting that at the time they first came out, everyone thought tasers were terrible. Now a lot of people look at them as being the lesser of some other evils, uh, given, given other things that have gone on. So I would just, that statute, because it relates to finances and the power of the purse, I think is an area, again, where the council has more authority than it does if it's trying to just set policy in the abstract. And then the final key statute is 6213, uh, the uh, Police and Fire Commission statute. And this is important for a number of reasons. Um, first of all, it gives the Police and Fire Commission, not the mayor, not the Common Council, not anybody else, 
the authority to hire and fire the police chief, hire and fire the fire chief. They're the ones who ultimately have control over discipline of employees if they wish to take it to the police and fire commission. I mean, the chiefs can impose discipline, but it can be heard by the police and fire commission. And uh, there are many, many cases um, and attorney general's opinions that say that the purpose of this statute, which has been around for over 100 years, I think, is to remove the operation of the fire departments from the political influences of the common council. And so you can see how strong a statement that is then in that if the council begins to get too far into the operations of the police department, they essentially would be becoming the police chief. And they were not appointed the police chief by the police and fire commission. This person was appointed the police chief. Um, and this idea of, of keeping separate our, our police department operations and the uh, political winds of the Common Council is a, is a very strong one in terms of that statute. So here you've got a countervailing statute that kind of goes the other way in terms of the independence of the uh, police and, and fire departments. Those are the main four that we're talking about. And as you can see, just from my description, it doesn't give you a clear answer as to what, where the power lies in any given situation. So you have to sort of look at the individual facts, try and analyze it. I think you can think some areas where it's clearly, you know, outside the authority of the mayor and common council related to hiring of, of police officers, discipline and firing of police officers. Those things are, are clearly outside uh, the area. Um, some are clearly within, you know, finances, I think, uh, clearly within. Um, if we know exactly what a lawful order is, that clearly is within the, the power of the Common Council uh, and the mayor. Um, I generally interpret it that, that I think the closer you get to intruding on to day-to-day operations of the police department, the closer you're getting to overstepping your line because it is the chief who's told to operate and run the police department. To the extent you are uh, further back setting more overall policy, I think, or you or having something to do with finances, I think you have more authority. Um, and I often suggest that when you get in these situations, sort of a, a practical or political answer is often best of some discussions between uh, the council, the mayor, the police chief about where we want to go on this and trying to work out um, some sort of modus operandi that everybody works with. Um, an example I thought of, I'm not sure if it's the best example, but an example I thought of, com- contrast these two resolutions adopted by the council. One would say, Chief, we're having, um, we're having security problems downtown on Saturday night between 8 p.m. and 2 a.m. Therefore, you need to have eight police cars to in that area every night. You need to have 14 police officers on patrol. They each need to have these sorts of uh, weapons or facilities with them, and they need to work in groups of two, and we want them you know, patrolling this area at this time. Contrast that with a resolution that says, we find that there are a lot of problems downtown at night on the weekends, and Chief, can you do something about getting better protection here? We're giving you some money. Yes, and we're probably giving you some more money if you don't have it. That's how it ends. <laughs> yeah. So, but I mean, I guess I think those are sort of at the extreme, but you can see that what I'm trying to do is draw this distinction that the, the, the more you get into the details or the more you act like you're actually running the department, the more questions would be raised about your authority, the more you're setting broader policy, I think, um, I think you're in better shape. Um, and wait, before we get into questions about use of force, <laughs> there is a specific statute which directs the police chief to adopt a policy on use of force. 
I'm not quite sure what that means about the council's ability to influence that, but the statute says every chief of police has to adopt a policy on use of force, and that's uh, by state law. Because I'm sure that that's one of the questions that at some point will come before you or for some, somebody. So that, that's sort of my introduction and overview. If there are questions about individual memos or on what I've said so far, I'd be happy to try and answer them. Alder Kemble and then Alder DeMar. Just a quick one. Is there any case law around the lawful orders? No. Zero. Yeah, zero. Hmm. Alder DeMar? That's awful. Yeah. yeah. The, the closest case you had was where there was a very confusing case. It's in some of the memos here. Very confusing case about um, uh, the chief trying to fire somebody and the police and fire commission wouldn't do it. And then the police and fire commission all resigned. So there was no police and fire commission. And then the mayor and the council got together and said, here, you new folks are the police and fire commission and decide what to do about this officer. And the court said, that's fine. You're not telling them what to do. You're just telling them basically do your job. <laughs> um, and and that, was, that was determined to be fine. Never discussed, though, in the context of whether it was a lawful order, just whether or not it was proper for them to do that. I have just a couple clarifying questions. Um, you said the use of force uh, regarding that is the police chief's job to adopt a policy. Right. Is that every police chief? Yes, in the state. Adopt. Right. It could be a previous policy that they just reaffirmed, but they need to. Correct. Yep. Okay. And then um, the new chief of police when they take. Yeah. Well, I. I'm, I'm guessing that most chiefs of police, when they take office, accept or adopt all the policies that are out there until they change them. Yeah. Part of the pomp and circumstance that you go through. Um, so the day-to-day -day operations is the job of the chief. Yep. And then, so what's the job of the mayor as head of the police department? Something other than day-to-day -day operations and 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 something more than um, something more than the chief being totally independent. Um, uh, I think it well it, it it relates to the other statute which says that the mayor can issue mayor can issue a lawful order to the chief in addition to the council. Mm -hmm. So that in some way makes him the head. I think the mayor could also give the chief some directions to do things that would be similar to what the council might do in a resolution that was broad policy but not day-to-day -day operations. As head of the department, the mayor has the ability to bring a complaint against the chief at the police and fire commission. Um, and I, I can't remember. I issued a, the memo on that. I can't remember if I did. I think I determined it wasn't clear if the mayor could bring one against an individual officer or if the chief had to make that determination first. I think I ducked that question. I have a follow-up. So, so what is the fine line between the mayor would have to go to the PFC to fire, file a complaint and having some kind of disciplinary management reserves the right to, like, uphold labor, you know, personnel rules. 
the the mayor or the yeah, police chief? Yeah, there's a fine line between discipline that you the mayor would have authority as a manager over other, you know, people under him versus the role of the police and fire commission. Okay, well, if you're talking about, you know, um, commissioned officers in the police department, the discipline there is, resides with the chief. And then if they wish to challenge it, they can take the disciplinary action to the Police and Fire Commission and have them hear it. When the, or the chief may bring an action, for example, to terminate somebody if they won't agree to it, in front of the Police and Fire Commission, and they hear that. The statute gives the mayor the authority at least, I think, if he wants to discipline the police chief to go to the Police and Fire Commission to do it. Unlike other managers, I don't think the mayor has authority to discipline the police chief or anyone else absent using the police and fire commission unless they agree to it. You know, they reach an agreement that, okay, I agree this discipline is fine. I won't take it, I won't take it up to the PFC. Um, so that's different than other managers where, you know, if he wants to discipline me, he just disciplines me and I have some right to grieve it under the new procedures, but that's, that's about it. I don't, I don't get the right to go to a, a special board like the Police and Fire Commission. Thank you. Elder Kimball? Okay. So this gets to the issue of accountability and what lawful orders mean. Um, so the mayor can give lawful orders, and the council can give lawful orders, but we don't have the power to enforce them, right? Yeah, that's, I mean, that's one of the problems you have. You issue a lawful order to the police chief, and he tells you no. Um, The choices at that point would either you have a lawsuit and have a court say that, yes, it was a lawful order, and the police chief has to follow it, or somebody brings a complaint at the Police and Fire Commission and says the police is in dereliction of his duty, he received this lawful order and failed to follow it. During the course of those disputes, somebody would decide whether or not what, what you did was really a lawful order. So you gave us an opinion um, earlier this year that said council members cannot bring a complaint as council members in front of the PSC. Correct. Or the, I think it was more in the terms of the council cannot. And you said if an individual council member did, it would have to be a personal issue, not on behalf of the council, but a a personal issue, and they would have to hire their own attorney. They would have to hire their own attorney, and you would have to demonstrate that you were an aggrieved person. I don't think I went so far as to say that you couldn't show you were aggrieved because you were a council member, only that the council itself can't bring an action. Um, so it would be an individual action, and you'd have to meet the standards of what was an aggrieved person under the under 6213. So that, to me, begs the question of what lawful order from the council means, if there's really no internal mechanism for accountability of that. You see what I'm saying? Although the mayor has some, because the mayor, whoever's in the office of the mayor, can bring a complaint, but we can't as a council. As a council, you could not. That's right. Or as a council member. Well, as an individual council member, the question would be, are you really just the same as a citizen then? Right. You have to be exactly. an aggrieved person. So yeah. then what does it really mean for the council to give a lawful order, and is that different than the mayor giving a lawful order? I mean, you said the mayor can just do it by an email, but we would have to act as a body right. and do it as a resident. <clears throat> Obviously, we would have to do that. Do that do but the mayor wouldn't have to do some formal, like, administrative... I don't procedure. I don't the mayor could just, you said, give an email or. Right. 
And then the mayor also has the power to bring that complaint. Correct. And they don't have to go to district court. We would have to go to district court. You would have to go to circuit court circuit if you wanted court. to bring the action that way. Or uh, an individual member of the council could bring it. I mean, I would not think it. I would not think it beyond your authority to pass a resolution saying we think the chief is out of order here, and we direct the council president to bring uh, a complaint in front of the police and fire commission because we're all aggrieved. Hmm. Okay. So, Alder Bidar. So, in essence, though. It does say that the it does say that the chief is supposed to enact a lawful order. Order. It does say that if we give a lawful order, now forget the definition of right. what it is. If let's say for the sake of argument that it is a lawful order, whatever right. that is, but that he's supposed to then follow it. Follow it. Correct. So as far as I can, I mean, I guess no different than any other department had, right? So like we could tell, use <laughs> you. Like we could say, you know, Attorney May, we, you know, we pass a resolution and we say we would like the city attorney um, to do X, Y, and Z, and you're supposed to do it. Mm -hmm. You could decide, just like the example we give, that you're just not going to do it. And the only person that really can discipline you on the, is the mayor, mm -hmm. unless you're in your five-year renewal thing, then we right. can discipline you by not renewing it. That, so I, I guess the only difference in that discipline process is really that we don't have that five-year renewal trigger Correct. with the police chief. Right. They serve during good behavior. So in, that, in, a, in a sense, as far as, I, mean, I just want to make sure that as far as that piece of accountability is no different than any other department. I mean, we give them lawful order. We expect them to follow it. If they don't, we can complain to the mayor, but if the mayor decides that he likes the fact that they're following our lawful order and not going to discipline them, we have to wait maybe four and a half years and not renew their contract. But or, or, essentially. or possibly have an impact on their budget. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, and so as far as this law, so back to the lawful order, I guess you said there's no case um, law for in this particular area, but you seem to be very stuck in like some kind of, there is some meaning to this word lawful. Right. That you're, because it was used and so it must have meaning, um, which is very lawyerish of you. <laughs> And so one of the one of the rules one of the rules of interpreting statutes is that when there's a word in there, it's supposed to mean something. Right. As a you know, which again, as a linguist, sometimes I read this stuff, and certainly they, their English is not that great. Um, so I wonder if they really mean what they mean. So, but that's a beyond. The, so, is there a case law in anywhere else where this word "lawful" is used? Oh, Undefined. Undefined. Oh. Like what? What is? I mean, if you think it's a word that has some kind of a legal meaning attached to it, what does it mean? I'm sure there are other places where it's used. I have not tried to run those down and see whether they would shed any light on what it means in this statute. Um, if I were to do that, I would probably um, only look in two places, and that would be in other Wisconsin law mm -hmm. and in other. Um, law enforcement type um, laws and I'd probably start with New York because we get a lot of our laws from New York um, 
But no, I did not look at that to try and find out what it might mean. Um, if, if there was a dispute and I had to try and really figure out what a lawful order was, I might spend the time doing that research, but I have not at this point. If you want, I can sick one of our law clerks on that and see if they can find anything. I have a question. So you mentioned um, statute requires the chief to adopt a policy and use of force. And later, the next agenda item is a report back from some of you who attended uh, Representative Taylor's discussion on any ideas she might be proposing. So we know at that level that it could be a change. But on our level as a council, what is our um, authority over directing an update to the use of force or making specific changes to an already uh, adopted procedure? Do we have any authority on that level? Um, I would say, again, it depends on what you are trying to do. I don't think you could adopt the use of force standard for the chief or amend it as he's adopted it. I think you could make suggestions to him that we think that perhaps you ought to do this. I think you could tell him, we want you to examine and revise your use of force policy and, and, and tell, us, tell us what a new one would look like or tell us what some of your options are and why you chose the one you did. Um, I think that's something you could do. That would be, that would be without intruding into the substance of, of, his thing, of his authority, it would still be to say, you know, we want you to relook at this and we want you to report back on what you've determined. Um, just further question on what you just said or, or clarification. So we could say we would like you to revise your use of force policy, comma, based on, could we go that far, based on certain current uh, policy guidelines? Uh, could we... I guess I'd want to see. That. Well, There's something where I'd want. Century policing to put out by President Obama or, you know, something uh, along those lines. Could we actually, you know, give recommendations on what we would want them to use as guidance when revising okay. a policy? Okay, again, I would say that in, in my view, you could say to the chief, We'd like to have you review and revise, if necessary, your policy in light of these standards, which is different than saying revise your policy to be in compliance with these standards. In other words, he could look at it and look at those standards and come back and report to the Common Council that I've looked at those and I don't think those are appropriate. Here are the appropriate standards. And I don't think you could tell him no. No, those aren't appropriate. These other ones are appropriate or something like that. But certainly to say, would you look at your policy and review it in light of these new standards and report back to the council on how your policy stacks up with that and whether you think it ought to be changed. That still gives, that still leaves the chief with the operational control, but it, it tells him to do something in a policy way that doesn't interfere, I don't think, with his, um, his authority over the operations of the police department. It's sort of, I like that case where the court said, there's nothing wrong with saying, get busy and do your job. I guess it's just confusing to me. So the council, through resolution, could issue a lawful order that would say, police chief, 
we want you to revise your policy on X, Y, and Z, but we couldn't say in accordance with? I think the difference, maybe I misspoke, but the, difference, the, the distinction I was trying to make was I, I don't think you can direct the chief to revise a policy. Okay. You That's can, not you, a lawful order. Right. You could direct the chief to review, determine whether or not he wanted to revise okay. in light of some of these standards that we'd like to have you look at and come back to us and tell us what you decided as opposed to you deciding that you need to, this new pol this policy of yours, and again, I'm talking about this specific policy where it involves day-to-day -day operation, that we want you to come to this answer. No. Okay. So, so are you saying policy is day-to-day -day operation? I hope I didn't say that, but I might Because the way you distinguished it before was he gets to decide day-to-day -day operation, I, but council and mayor could divide, could could decide bigger, bigger policies. general Yes. But now you're saying we can't on policy. I don't think I said that. If I did. You're I saying we, could, we can't tell him to revise, but we can't give, we can't say we want a policy that reflects our community values and in these ways. We couldn't say we want a policy that mandates um, training and, and de-escalation tactics. We couldn't do that. Uh, I, depending on how specific it was, I would say no, you can't do that. How is that day-to-day operation? How is that day-to-day -day operations, though? I'm an operations manager, and that's not a day-to-day -day operation. Well, I, I may have to defer to police who know more about this, but if you're specifying that your policy on use of force must include these steps, that, to me, is an operational statement about how the officer's going to operate in the field. Isn't it? What am I, am I Anything that's policy gets, a pro, gets to have an operational consequence. It's not, I mean, there's no point in policy yeah. if it's not going to change operations. That's what policy does. But it, that's what policy does. I mean, policy tells you what the overarching rules of operations are going to be. From not like, you know, underlying one, it could, the policies would say, we wanted, you know, we want to make sure people that are um, visually impaired can read documents. I may not say it needs to be Times New Roman font 16, but I will tell you I need to have visually impaired people be able to access the documents. Mm -hmm. So, but if I say that and not, no change happens in operations, I can make any, I mean, then what's the point of policy? Right. If I said that I want a policy that's you know visually impaired people have access, and no change is made in operations, then there's no point in making policy. So, I guess to me, for example, what you describe in your example, which is you know have eight cars parked here, two people have them, you know every one of them walk around the block at 11:05, um, 11:10, and 11:20. That's operations. That's no doubt. That's like day-to-day -day operations um, of the department, but a policy around any, any policy, anything that's in a in policy manual is policy. It's not, um, it's, it's policy of, again, overall policy of de-escalation, how many hours of training, how many hours of, <coughs> to me that's policy, to me that's not day-to-day -day operation. Day-to-day operation would be for us to be 
really saying here is how you deploy your this method yeah yeah, well, Which, by the way, we we end up being much more involved. I, I should make a statement, but I make a statement. We end up being involved actually in a very interesting way, much more in day-to-day operation than in policy for the police department, because our budget actually very directly impacts yes. day-to-day operation, much more than we we get involved in these kind of policy discussions that now we're having. So we've impacted their day-to-day operations. And again, you said it's fine because it's, we have these budgetary powers, right? Um, but we, we have um, the discussion before us um, at the council next week, for that matter, is something that affects the day-to-day operation of the police department as a decision, a budgetary decision, but the decision much more than I would consider, for me, that's not really a policy decision. It's actually an operation decision. These kind of discussions are really policy discussions. But that's me. Captain? Yeah, I guess I'm getting confused here also because when you say that a policy can be created. So if I have somebody with a knife coming at me and the council says, well, if he has a knife coming at him, I don't want him to use his gun. I want him to use something else. I mean, that sounds kind of like where we're where we're going, we want you to do certain things. And, I mean, we have state law that already, some of the things that you're mentioning, state law already says that we have to have. So I guess my question, if it can be clarified here, Mike, can the council overrule state law and say, well, we don't like state law, and we just want you to do this and not what state law says? Because we have Graham versus Connor. We have other things that state law says that police officers, you are protected by doing these things. Mm-hmm. And so when you say, well, we want a policy to go this way, I mean, can the council then say to the chief, this is what we want. We don't like this. We want this. Um, I, again, I think I'd have to look at, you know, some very specific examples of it, but there, there are a couple things that come into play. Um, one is depending on how the state law is written, it may be absolutely prescriptive and you can't change it at all, period. Um, it may be written in a way that you can be either more strict or more lenient than it, but you can't go the other way. And depending on which side is strict or which side is lenient, it always depends on when you're looking at it. Um, uh, there's that. And then there's, secondly, the, the, the whole question of, and I think this is a serious question, that if, um, if an officer is going to be judged in court, by a specific standard that the law sets. And if the council says, no, we're going to have a different standard, I have concerns that that may mean that the officer can be um, held liable in any case. In other words, that he's held liable because he didn't meet the standard that the council set, um, or if he meets the lawful standard, that isn't the same as the council standard, and then, therefore, he could be responsible. Um, I think that's a very difficult thing to sort through in a given instance, particularly with the use of force. I mean, if, or think of it as um, uh, even, uh, let's, take, let's take it out of use of force because that gets, let's, let's suppose you're talking about um, high-speed pursuits. Um, and 
there is a legal standard about when you can use a high-speed pursuit and when you're not supposed to, and if there were an accident and someone were injured, those are the legal standards that would be applied in court. If the council were to set a different standard, that gives the uh, person who would be suing the officer the opportunity to say, I know he met this legal standard that's out there, but he's also required to meet this different standard that the council set, and he's responsible for that, even though under the legal standards that exist everywhere else in the world, he wouldn't be liable. So I think those are the things that happen because, I mean, there's a rule of law that if you break, you break a standard that's been set, that means you're negligent. So if the council sets standards that are stricter than would otherwise be applied, you increase the risk of possible liability on the part of officers and, and the city. Um, so those are questions that I think when you're looking at any specific standard or getting into that level of detail, you have to be very careful about what you do and whether you know you end up uh, with a, a result that was that was unintended. And I don't mean to, uh, just to get back to you, Alder Kimball, uh, I, I think I'd really need to talk or see more about what the policy you're talking about in terms of de-escalation and how that would fit in as to which side of the line it was on. Mm-hmm. Can, I ju- can I clarify about that? I'm sorry. I don't okay. So uh, my confusion is about, so we're not talking about the council setting standards for the behavior of individual officers. We're definitely not talking about talking about the of what I'm sorry the behavior the conduct of individual officers. We're not talking about the council setting any kind of standards in terms of the operating or individual officers. What we're talking about is giving direction to the chief in a policy way, giving some content, not just asking um, generically review your policies. But, say, but saying that we have these concerns and we would like you to, I said, for example, um, include de-escalation as part of your training, de-escalation techniques as part of your training, and do that as a lawful order. Now, that's not setting any standards or behavioral conditions on the employment of individual officers. That's telling the chief that the community would like our employees to be trained in a certain way. Um, and what, what I'm having problems with is you said that the, uh, the resolution that um, was prohibiting the use of tasers that actually prohibited was a legal one, was good. But then you were telling Alder DeMar we can't put any content and we can just suggest review of policies. But the one, the resolution you said was a good one, did have very specific content. Yeah, and, and was in the context also, I believe, of a budget that they were going to include in the budget. It was. I, I think so. Language that, um, language that no funds would be available for use of the tasers, which I thought was the real kicker. That meant, you know, if you, got, if you guys want to do that, you can do it. Um, but no city funds would be. Used. Yeah. And, and I must have misunderstood your, misunderstood your question before. I even think there's a difference between telling the chief, we would like you to include this topic in your training of your officers and saying that your use of force policy must contain this sort of um, standard regarding de-escalation. Do you see the distinction there? Yeah, but what if we say any standard, whatever standard you choose regarding de-escalation? 
okay, but that's not that's different than saying we want some de-escalation training, okay, which I think I... is on. The, I think I, I'd have trouble saying that you could, couldn't direct the police chief to do some training in an area. And but the, it's going to decide what the training looks like. But it's going like too and, far to say your use of force standard, your use of force policy has to include something about de-escalation. You choose what standard it is. You choose what. How you, how it's you cho you choose how it's implemented, but it has to have that as. I'd have to think about that. I'm not sure that that I'm not sure that a chief would find that objectionable, and I'm not sure I would. Well, it's not about whether he would find it objectionable. It, it's about is that a lawful? Forget, like, right. It's about is that a lawful order? Right. Well, I think it would be pretty important to find out. Does a chief think it's a lawful order? And if he if he says the chief or the courts. Well, the courts, if you want to get into a fight, but if the chief says, I'm fine with that, and you say, do it, we're done. We don't have to worry about what the courts would say or whether it's a lawful order or anything. We're done. Okay, so we're just exploring. I'm not trying to be combative. We're just exploring the limits of our authority here. Right. And yeah. the, the author, I mean, the authority, when you're just asking for voluntary compliance, that's not authority. That's good relationships. But so we're, I mean, I know I, in my mind, I'm trying to figure out what, what is the legal authority that we have, not do I have a good relationship with the chief? Right. Right? And that's what's still kind of unclear to me right now. Okay, and I guess my only point was that if you think it's a lawful order and the chief thinks it's a lawful order, and I'm not going to jump in there and tell either of you that you're wrong. Um, Attorney May, there's a hierarchy, right? There's a constitution, the federal constitution, and then there's state statute and there's city ordinances. So what if um, state statute goes beyond, has standards higher than the constitutional standards? It, would that become the thing that our local jurisdiction would have to follow? Yes. So even though we say, oh, we always do Cram versus Connor, if state law changes and it exceeds some of those standards, that would become the new, right. whatever it's called. That would be the standard, standard applied standard. to us, right? And a totally sort of a roundabout different thing is, so a, a couple of weeks ago, um, I was informed by a constituent that the use of force policy had been changed by the, the chief, and it was really kind of actually stuff I was happy to hear about. And so I emailed the chief about it, and he said, well, you know, he didn't tell Alders because he wanted to talk to his staff first. But what is, is there any kind of obligation to that he would then con convey changes in the use of force policy to the public entities of the mayor's office or the common council? Because I don't think that happened. And maybe it's just a, you know, it could have happened some later point, but it hasn't as far as I know. I don't know um, of a legal obligation to inform the mayor and the council of every change of in the policy manual, the that long policy manual that they have. Whether that whether that we would have jurisdiction to ask that any changes to the policy manual be be reported to you. I would think you could certainly. Council? I think you could certainly ask for that. Sure. I can, our, our policy manuals, when they're updated, they do go on our website. But we don't so, but, have time to check. Right. I mean, There's a well, lot of websites all over the that. world. That, yeah. and, and then we also are going through our in-services right now, which are concluding, which is including de-escalation training. But Kevin, you get the, the kind of the dilemma of learning about it from a citizen and not from 
the department. That's what it was, because somebody then obviously went and found it and told me about it. So, yay, but I wish that I could have heard it from you guys instead of my constituent. That's all. So, can I, I have one other question about this kind of, um, clearly we're going to follow federal law and, and state statute to, to Captain Wheeler's questions. Right? We're not going to, like, do some, whether we like it or not, <laughs> whole other thing, but, it, you know, we, we're going to, but, but I think you, you're trying to, to take us down an argument about liability if we make something that's um, more restrictive than this, let's say state statute, I'll take that. Let's say more restrictive, that there is, that, and you walked us through the, why there could be a, a higher potential for liability because we made it more restrictive. But that, that is a risk management issue, not a legal issue, is it? I mean, like, so the, the, like you're telling us, well, but by doing that legally, you can create a liability, a potential liability for the city. But from a legal perspective, we can make it more restrictive, right? Well, <coughs> uh, uh, assuming, again, you haven't crossed the line into the chief's <laughs> jurisdiction. Right. So it's a lawful order in all of this. And if you wanted to set a higher um, standard and pay for it when you had to pay for it, um, yeah, you, you could do that. You would have the legal authority to do that. Um, you would also have, I mean, that would involve an additional level of indemnification for the officer also. So. You're saying that every time we have, uh, so every time that we have any um, city um, policies that are more restrictive than state law, let's say state statute, that we should be looking at having additional indemnification insurance for that. And I'm trying, I know we're talking about this, but the same rules and this should, I'm, I'm, I try to look at this within the context of other things. So is that true for everything else? I mean, are there places in which we, do, we seem to be oftentimes criticized for having things that are more restrictive than state statute, like, you know, like all of our tenant law protections right. were more restrictive than city law. And so that means that we had to be worried about somebody suing us because we were being more restrictive and have addition. I, 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 was that true for those kind of cases or other it, it, department it, to have? Well, let's back up. There are a bunch of issues when you when you when you do that in landlord tenant law. The, the being more restrictive may just be illegal, and we may get sued on a declaratory judgment, and they say no, you can't do that. We may uh, put it into effect, and we may enforce it, and we may not just get sued to have it set aside. They may say, you've damaged me. And the city employee would say, but I was following the city rules. And, well, if the other side shows that, no, those city rules should not have been in effect or whatever, the city is going to pay for it. Um, that's When you impose those rules on third parties, it's a little different analysis than, we impose, than when we impose them on ourselves if you understand the difference there. In other words, in the landlord-tenant area, you're saying, people out there, you have, to, you have to apply these rules, and to the extent the city is going to get in trouble in that, it's because we've exceeded our authority in setting those rules. When we apply stricter rules to ourselves, 
and say all city employees using a city car cannot be within can't drive up to the speed limit. You have to be five miles below it just to be careful. And I'm driving between 20 and 25 in a zone, and I hit somebody. They'll sue me and say you were negligent. You were 22, and you can only go 20 because of this special rule the city has. Um, and so that's what I mean in the sense of there could be additional liability. And, and without looking at the specific area, I can't say you do have authority to do it. But if you do, then you got the authority, and the city pays the piper as you go along. And that's a policy question for it's a policy question for you folks to decide. If the city pays for it, if we ever were to be in that situation where somebody said, you know, right. we're driving 22. I, I know this is uh, sometimes confusing, and that's what I was trying to lay out at the beginning, is that I don't think these rules are very clear. And I'm, I'm trying to help you help them be clear, but I'm not sure I always am consistent either when I'm trying to explain them. <coughs> Attorney May, you didn't include a memo I asked for earlier this year, which is fine. I'm not saying it should have been included, but I asked you um, – about the the role of the PSC having more authority than it takes in the in its local embodiment, and you said they could have more authority over policies and procedures than they actually do in our local police and fire commission. But then you recommended, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, so you can clarify that. Then we kind of give up our power to them. So could you just sort of outline that issue a little bit so people are aware of that, we're reminded of that. Yeah, um, I think I, I think I just sent that to you in an email, didn't I? What, yeah. yeah, it wasn't uh, 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 actual formal memo. Uh, there's a certain section of 6213, which I'd have to look up now. I think it's six or five or something, which gives, uh, which if adopted by a community, um, makes the police and fire commission much more like a governing board for the police and fire departments. In other words. Rather than the chief setting these policies, the board does. Rather than the chief deciding some of these operational things, the police and fire, the commission decides these things. Um, and it, there's a whole detailed description of how that works. Um, and that's, I think, what you were asking about, and I provided you with the information on that. We have not adopted that. And to my knowledge, there are only a couple of places in the state that have adopted it. Um, and I didn't follow up to find out you know, fine, which ones. I recall that you said that it would also, if that were adopted by them, give them the sort of budget authority, and that they would take over the the budget authority of the the, the two departments. Is that? Am I remember that correctly? So that made me decide that I didn't need to pursue that at all. But <laughs> I thought it was interesting. Well, it's really interesting because. Well, here's um, the optional powers to organize and supervise the fire and police departments, prescribe rules and regulations for their control and management, to contract for and purchase all necessary apparatus and supplies for the use of the departments under their supervision, um, exclusive of the uh, uh, building of police stations, to audit all bills. <laughs> To audit all bills, claims, and expenses before they're paid by the treasurer. And then it's got to be approved by the electors. It goes on for there. But it gives them much more authority over 
entering into contracts, over determining what bills are, are, are or not be paid. And I don't know how that then relates to the budget authority, whether that means they have authority to pay anything within there until they hit the budget, or whether they can say we need, we're entrusted with doing you know, police protection and fire protection, and we need to buy a new fire truck, and we're going to buy it and send the bill to the city. I, I, I haven't looked into all that. But it does change the relationship between um, the council and the police department in terms of who has that authority, yeah. which I think is why very few people have adopted it, is that, as I said, the, the area where the council has some strength is the power of the purse, and if you start to give that up, then... So, I'm reading the statute now, and this is uh, sub, 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 and there are three points under it, under optional powers. Yep. So, it says the Board of uh, Fire and Police Commissioners shall have the further power. Could, could they have one of these three powers, or would they have to have all or nothing? So, 6A, could they just have 6A1, or... Would they have to take all three of those? Looks to me like they would have to take all three. And my conclusion on that is from subsection B, which talks about the referendum, which says the referendum will ask, shall the authority of 6213 sub 6 be so adopted? the entire six. Okay. So I don't think you can pick and choose out of there. Other questions? Oh. Um, if, as you go down the line, if you have some very specific issues that you'd like me to try and weigh in on, on, on uh, your authority versus the chief or the mayor, I'd be happy to try and do that. Thank you. Could you just clarify the thing you said about the council could pass a resolution saying the chief um, – acted out of order in directing the council president to bring a complaint in front of the PFC. Um, I'm confused. Okay, so you you said it would not be out of order, and I typed this verbatim when you were saying it, it would not be out of order for the council to pass a resolution saying the chief acted out of order and directing the council president to bring a complaint in front of the PFC. Right. I think you could do that. So I don't think the council can bring the complaint. But if the council felt that there had been a violation that merited a complaint, you could direct the council president or someone to bring the complaint. But it's not brought on behalf of the council. The council president is just like another person aggrieved when they bring that. Oh, so the council president wouldn't be acting as the council president? I don't think so. Why would it be the council Why would we need to do a resolution then? And why would the council president? And why would it be the council president? Oh, I don't know. The council president might want that direction or police chief might want to know that you're unhappy and think that you shouldn't have done that and you're going to bring this action rather than it look like a, a rogue member of the council who's angry at the chief decided to bring it but the person wouldn't be representing the council they would you're saying no not not in the sense that there was an action by the council they wouldn't no okay so are there any other things that people would want the chief to work on in the interim, or we just want to wait as we go along and check back with them? You said the chief or the city attorney? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think 
would appreciate if there are questions for Attorney May or um, Attorney Paulson that um, it's sent to all of us so we all have that feedback. That would be helpful. But our response goes to yeah, yeah. your response. Yeah. Your response goes yeah. Well, I think the idea of trying to see whether we've got similar statutes anywhere out there that talk about a lawful order or lawful action or something like that that gives us some better definition there might be something worth looking into, and so I plan to do that. If I could, um, Mike, there is um, some authority that the mayor has under emergency management. Under that context, is that good would be talking lawful orders? I, I didn't look at the emergency management area when this is. I know the mayor has... Uh, very strong powers when there's an emergency to suspend all kinds of rules and order all sorts of things to happen. And I didn't look specifically at uh, that as it related to, to the issue of a lawful order to the police chief. I, th I, would, I would almost view that as separate authority given to the mayor that just, that just sort of supersedes everything. The, the courts are very um, um, deferential to bodies when they when there's an emergency and they declare it and they start doing things that they otherwise wouldn't have the power to do. So does the mayor, is he the one or she um, that would declare this emergency yes. or if the chief yeah. could not no, do this? No, the mayor, the mayor declares a, a, an emergency. We've got a whole form that exists out there for the mayor to fill in and sign his name and there's an emergency. Um, I believe the, or the the statute says that eventually that order has to come to the council to be confirmed, but they, they don't, it doesn't have to call a council meeting in, when the tornado is coming through town to declare the emergency. Go ahead, Heather. Um, the, the conversation on lawful order just reminds me of um, uh, something I read in analysis by PERC, the police executive research um, team that looked at the Milwaukee um, the Milwaukee Police and Fire Commission or the, or the Milwaukee Fire and Police Commission, um, uh, they referenced historically how um, occasionally in Wisconsin when a new mayor would come into office, they would fire the chief and fire all of the staff of the police force. And that that seems to me likely to be one of the unlawful type of orders that that may have been a question. And so I would almost wonder if by lawful they simply mean lawful, like a legal order, something that would stand the test of legal. Yeah, I mean, I, mean, I think that's true. But the question is, is it legal if you issue an order that, you know, enters into the chief's jurisdiction in day-to-day -day operations? I wonder if that, I'm just curious whether that's, that's really where it's going, or is it just lawful in the sense of it would be lawful for the chief to do it, it's also lawful for, you know, an, another body to do it if they have relevant authority. Oh, oh okay. That's, so what you're I, saying. that's the distinction uh, I see. Uh, that's why I was lawful, yeah, an order, an order, uh, an order um, directing lawful action right. as opposed to a lawful order. Yeah. Uh, yes. Yeah, there's some really interesting stuff on the history of history of police and fire commissions because it was the, the chief, the chief and the officers would be fired, and the friends of the new administration would be hired until there was another election, and then it would change again. And there's also interesting stuff in Milwaukee because there were separate statutes for Chief Breyer. Um, I'm sorry, for the chief of police of Milwaukee. 
for years and years and years that, that gave him more authority than any other chief in the state. Well, thank you both. Thank you. Thank you. Hope it was helpful. For coming. Absolutely. And our last item, well, besides discussing next meetings, our next item and last item is a member's report on uh, attendance at State Representative Chris Taylor's discussion on use of force policies that was held on October 13, 2016. I see Elder McKinney is in the, the room. If you want to join us, you might have joined us anyway if you wanted. But anyway, doesn't want to. So anybody who wants to report on the meeting? I'm looking to see if I have my notes in this stack of papers. I don't have my notes, but I can kick off and yeah, go, ahead. go in with details. Um, there were four of us there, I believe. Alder Kimball, Alder Vidar. Oh, I'm sorry. What? You talk into the mic. So oh, sure. I'm sorry. Alder Kimball, Alder Vidar, um, myself, Alder Zellers. Am I missing anyone at that meeting? There were some county board supervisors, but I think that was the elders. And um, I'm very glad that I um, was informed by Elder Kimball that it was taking place and and went to it because she has done uh, so much research, and her and her staff, and I suggested at that meeting that um, Representative Taylor come and report, you know, the presentation slash report to us and the other um, ad hoc committee, the Citizens Committee. I just think it would be very interesting, just as Attorney May sort of laid out, you know, what our authority is, um, for her to talk to us about what what the state really has, her work is all on use of force, by the way. So what the state has um, legally, you know, and um, where there's more or less, you know, the, the same lines that Attorney May was talking about on a law. And, um, and she's went so far as to look into Madison PD policy and how that, what's, what's in there and, and how it aligns um, and how it may change or not. So I just thought it was very interesting, and it was a, she has a, a wealth of information um, to share. And I think it, since we're doing this work and we're doing this work in tandem, um, it would make sense to me that both committees have the opportunity to hear from her. And then um, that might be one of the meetings where we have this special um, suspension of the rules to, you know, invite other folks um, to the table to um, discuss and um, ask questions. Yeah, she talked about other cities, um, the policies they've adopted, um, and gave just different examples. Um, she also talked about she had requested a, a ledge council memo our Legislative Reference Bureau memo on what was specifically the topic. What was that topic that she re she is waiting to get the memo back around state statute? 
I am so sorry that I didn't bring my notes because I had I did I did have good notes. Well, um, Alder McKinney and I met with her early this summer, so she has probably moved on since we met with her. But I do have with me the, the kind of handout she gave us, and she was looking at some really broad um, topics, including. Um, if, I, if you don't mind, I'll just kind of go through some of them. That deadly force should only be authorized after all other possible means have been exhausted. And she goes through things like Department of Justice policy, um, what happened in Colorado Springs, Kenosha, La Crosse, and Madison. Another topic was adopt policies requiring an officer's tactical conduct and decisions leading up to using force be considered in judgments of whether such force is reasonable, i.e., officer-created jeopardy, and she cites other um, ordinance, other languages in other departments, including L.A., Philadelphia, and Madison, um, saying it's not part of our policy. Uh, another one was adopt policies requiring officers give a verbal warning when possible before using force and give subjects a reasonable amount of time to comply with the warning. And she had a dozen more, and I won't take up all the time reading them. So I hope that we can bring her here, and she can probably give the, her up-to-date handout, and we can all read it and look at some of the, the resources she has available. Holder DeMarb? I mean, and, and the reason that I suggested it to, to you um, after that was we certainly will be looking at more topics than use of force, but we are always reminded of what the state, you know, what the state laws are and, and what is in our purview to take um, a look at or, or to change. And, and that work has been done, you know, and she's really gone into, I think, a, quite a lot of detail and um, time comparing it. So I think we'd be remiss to not take advantage of the, the work that, that has been done there. It was uh, quite impressive. And everybody agrees with that? We want her to come? Is that fair to say? Okay, so that kind of maybe leads us to the last item, which is some future meeting dates and topics, and then maybe we could talk about when we could try to find a place, time and place for Representative Taylor. I could see if she's available December 13th. Okay, that sounds have anything. So the next meeting is Wednesday, November 21st at the Meadow Ridge Library. That can't be right. Monday is November 21st. Um, 6.30, oh. scheduled presentation on the United Way uh, Madison Police Department Task Force report. And Captain Wheeler will present along with Captain Roman. And then Thursday, December 1st. December 1st is a Monday. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. So is it one? Is it the twenty-first or is it Tuesday? It's Monday. It is Monday. So the Wednesday is the wrong. Wednesday the twenty-first. Yeah, because it's on my calendar for the Monday. She has Monday the twenty-first. The twenty-first too. So it's Wednesday what? No, it's Monday the twenty-first. Oh, Monday the twenty-first. I'm just reading what's on the piece of paper. I know. I see. Okay. Too many meetings. And then the second meeting is Thursday, December first at noon sort of a subcommittee process and check-in meeting. And then the third meeting that we have scheduled is Tuesday, December 13th, 6 o'clock at the Goodman Community Center, uh, scheduled to be determined. Well, I can see if Representative Taylor is available on the 13th. Um, if she's not, 
um, I don't know what you would want to fill that. Can we look at January then? Um, do a joint meeting? Because yeah, and that would be for a joint meeting. Oh. And I'd suggested, oh. I don't know how well this will work, but it, since there's more um, citizen members of the, uh, the other ad hoc committee, that we might take one of their meeting times to have Representative Taylor come and us to attend okay. that meeting. Joint meeting. Yeah, yeah, because okay. there's, you know, there's more of them and they're citizen yeah. members. So, you know, trying to be respectful of their time. Okay, that's a good. That, maybe we could go to their meeting and then have a right. Right. That would be, wouldn't it? December first at noon. Um, and then we'd also talked about doing outreach to some community groups. So that will, we need to sort of, we have a list of, we made a whole long list and maybe. I don't know if you're prepared, but at some point we can get an update on where we're at with some of the other community groups. And it was um, also interesting. I just wanted to throw it out here as possible things for us to take a look at. Um, when um, Chris Schmidt was president and I was his pro tem, we went out to the training center and um, spent time out there. Uh, going through the training center, but also um, sitting with two officers who took us through the tools on their tool belt. And when they, or how they use them, and that was another, I suppose, use of force um, within, within that same topic. But it was very interesting to um, hear from them on, you know, from the cops doing doing the work and, um, you know, when they would use a baton as a mm -hmm. baton um, instead of a taser or you know, this sort of thing. And um, it, it was eye-opening, actually. I just think, again, it's important if we are looking at, and this being one of the topics, but certainly one of the things we're going to be looking at, um, to not only hear from the state and not only hear from the captains, but to hear from the folks um, actually that we are employing to do this work. So I would recommend that we do that, um, and that could be one of the places we go is actually to the training center. Some of us probably haven't been there. We were trying to set that up, okay. you know, in the beginning, <laughs> but it was just an issue of timing where the um, person that's our use of force sergeant now, he was doing training and during this past month. So I can get some dates, you know, when he's available, and we can definitely set that up. I'll probably be there when, when my captain is the, the captain because yeah. Mary Shaw's moving out there. So. I'll give you some dates. Lisa. Okay, thank you, Dan. <laughs> and, you know, uh, reading through... Um, our minutes from last time, and we did talk about, Heather had sort of talked about doing um, a community, you know, doing some outreach where we're going to go to an event. So I think maybe at that noon meeting that could be a topic. I'm going to have a real hard time doing this noon meeting in December because of, like, the kind of um, stuff we're doing at work. So, so, but you all can do it without me. I, I fully have faith in you. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Is there any other topics before move, move adjournment? Second. All in favor? 
Thank you.